Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Bruce, good morning. It is so good to be back talking with you today. Well, it's great to have you back. It was a lot of fun working with Cole there and, and getting the experience with him. Uh, but, uh, you know, Rachel, we see a lot of clients and everybody ask about you all the time. So it's, uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really nice that you're going to be back on the program. And, um, you know, we just want to keep this educational process up. And I know a lot of people are very appreciative of that. So I'm looking forward to this. Well, I know you are excellent at communicating so much. And there's just been so much amazing content that you've been sharing. Um, You've had an interview with a client. You've been talking about annuities and guaranteed income and a bunch of amazing things while I was out um, due to getting ready to deliver a baby and then having just delivered a baby and all of the adjustment that happens with that. And um, just for anyone who has followed our story, birth was amazing. It, It went according to clockwork, as amazingly as it could have. And um, our son, Eli, is doing really well. I'm doing really well. And he sleeps great. So in terms of baby world, all of the things that could possibly be really, really difficult and challenging are not, which is awesome. Um, it still is always an adjustment, adding a new human into the house and and having all of the, the schedules change. So we're getting back on most of our routines. But today we are going to be covering part 12 in Becoming Your Own Banker. We're jumping back into the series. And so it's been a little bit of a break in the live um, conversations that we've had through Nelson Nash's um, really critical and groundbreaking work that he did by talking about the power of infinite banking and using whole life insurance as a banking product. So we've covered a lot of ground already in this series. We are not even halfway through this thin book though, and we're on part 12. So I anticipate it might take us like 20 or maybe even 30 episodes to get through all of the meat in this book. But today we're going to be unpacking the chapter that he calls creating the entity. And that doesn't that title, it's a very difficult thing. I think Nelson probably had titling his chapters because there's so much packed into each one. And so when I really unraveled what the meaning of this chapter was, it seems that a better conceptualization that you may need in terms of understanding what we're going to be talking about today is what is the cost of life insurance? What is the cost of how is it priced? How is premium determined And what does that mean for you if you're getting ready to fund a life insurance policy and you're saying, I want to use this banking process. I want to have infinite banking where I'm storing my cash in a banking policy. But how do I think about that in terms of the cost of the life insurance component itself? And how does the insurance company set that? And what does that mean for me as I'm getting ready to pay my premiums to keep this banking policy working? And how do I think of it in terms of banking plus the death benefit and the life insurance plus the banking. How does that work together in terms of how premium is derived? And so we're going to unpack a lot of things. And I know I overuse that word unpack for any of you who have shared that with me. Um, But really, there's so much here to unpack in terms of what 
goes into the pricing strategy at the life insurance company level for whole life insurance. And so, Bruce, I think this is going to be a fascinating conversation. I have no idea how we are going to cover this in anything remotely close to an hour. I have a feeling we're not going to get through the whole thing. But if you have questions today on life insurance, on infinite banking, on anything we discussed today, on anything you've ever heard about infinite banking, on anything we've said in the past, please drop those into the chat if you're listening live. And we would love to either take that question into consideration and discuss that in a dialogue format with you today as we're addressing these issues. And if we are not able to cover that, we'd be happy to address that in a future episode or directly to you, depending on the nature of your question and and how would be best to answer that. So Bruce, I'm really excited to jump into this. Do you have any words of um, just kind of big picture perspective or angle uh, as we come into this chapter today before we start? Yeah, I do. You know, he what he was talking about was creating the entity and what he meant was creating the guideline that you would use for infinite banking. And he talks about other, in other sections of the book that you can do infinite banking with other things. He talks about, you know, using a CD. He talked about using um, your home equity line of credit. Um, you know, the other things we've talked about in the past, you could use your margin account at a at your brokerage account. And there's a lot of things. But what he's now saying is you can do it all, but let's look at what he believes is the entity that is the best to do it with. You know, Rachel, when I when I read when I read reviews of Nelson's book on Amazon or other places, a vast majority of them are very, very complimentary. There are a few that, um, for whatever reason, are not complimentary. One of the things that I find a lot is people are say, well, there's just a lot of folksy um, things in the book, and it really, it really isn't about banking. And I think this is a, this is a short-sighted look at this because what, what Nelson is trying to say is that banking is the process. In order to do something in your life, you have to understand the process. And I should say that in order to do it well, you have to understand the process. So that's why Nelson broke down how the actual cost of the insurance works and how life insurance works in general. And I think this is a a very interesting thing. I think people can actually translate this information to other aspects of their life. And the final thing I'd like to say before we get started is you need to rethink your thinking. That's the fifth tenet of what Nelson talks about. And this is a great way to start to say, hey, I need to rethink my thinking of why I need to know this. Because mm. a, a lot of people are just going to say, I, why do I need to know this? Oh, that's good. And I think, yeah, I think you need to rethink this and, and really pay attention because there's going to be some aha moments in this. Uh, I love that you said the rethink you're thinking on why it's important for me to know this. I think there's so many things that we as humans, I will just share for myself because I think probably other people may find themselves in this themselves in this experience. I tend to be able to make decisions quickly based on big picture information and not necessarily need all of the details to make a decision for myself. This is not just in one area of life. This is 
How are we going to feed our child? What kind of schedule are we going to put them on? How are we going to school our children? Um, Am I going to be a Christian? Am I going to use infinite banking? All of these kind of big decisions. Should we buy a house? These I tend to make them quickly with not a lot of detailed information. However, when I realize that I want to communicate about my decision to someone else, specifically someone who is my child. (laughs) And the reason I say my child is because if I want to communicate to my 11-year-old daughter why I've made a certain decision, I want to be able to assimilate detailed information into a reason why and give a logical explanation for what that decision was. And when I begin to teach on any topic, then I realize all of the things that I need to know to form that logic more effectively. And so it helps me dig in and really understand the decision better. And so you might find yourself in a position of saying, infinite banking sounds great. And and this is if you identify as being a person like me, infinite banking sounds great. Let's go ahead and do it. And then you have a spouse or a business partner or somebody else in your life who says, well, why are you doing that? And you say, well, because I'm storing cash. Well, they might have more detailed questions that will help you be more uh, convicted about why you're making a decision if you are able to answer them effectively. So um, I do just want to point out that we have a question already and Bruce, thanks for responding. So Nanoon Fa, I think I'm saying that correctly, asks if I fund the policy and happen to be an insurance agent, can I get commissions? Bruce says, yes, you can. And yes, that is true. So um, thank you for jumping in. When you you think about it, it's no different than if you uh, own a business and you know, you buy from the business, you buy at retail, and then you get the profits of it. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Rachel, I thought what Absolutely. we would start we would start today. You know, I was looking at this, and my my book. I, you know, I've read it. I don't know how many times because every time I read it, I find a little bit more tidbit. But the CSOs tables or the Commissioner Standard Ordinary tables that the actuaries develop is is really important part of Nelson's explanation of of the pricing of insurance. Yes. And the first thing that he in his book even though it came out in 2000 he actually he's actually using the 1958 CSO tables. So from my research I just want to let the clients know or people that are listening in the CSO tables um, 1941 edition, 1958 edition, 1975 edition, 1980 edition, 2001 and 2017. And if history says it, they're going to change again. Why? Because we are tending to live longer. Now, so there before, was a blip. So those are the times that they've been updated, right? Can you, um, for a listener who's not familiar with CSO, can you just tell maybe a brief definition? What is a CSO table before you well, share why that, it matters? It's, it's a ta- yeah, it's a table that the, the actuaries use on uh, constructing uh, the pricing of the insurance. And so what they do is that it's, it's constructed from data on 10 million selected lives. Mm-hmm. Now, this is really important. And I talk about this. <laughs> excuse me. I talk about this with our clients all the time that may get a standard rating, this is really important. So uh, if I don't explain it well, somebody else ask or tell me on social media that I didn't explain it well. <clears throat> but these are on selected lives. These are people that are 
expect it to get life insurance, not people that have some kind of physical problem that they would not get life insurance. So they're pre-selecting it. They're selecting that out. So think about it like this. The CSO tables are actually about from the time of birth all the way to the time of death. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people, a lot of uh, babies do die at birth. They are figured into the calculation. There are also, when there's a genetic problem, it often uh, manifests itself early on in life. So those people tend to die quickly. Mm-hmm. And from the CSO tables, it actually says on here that, and I was, sh- I've always been shocked when I see this, but out of 1,000 Americas born, they actually, a hundred of the 1,000 actually die before age 45. And so when people say to me all the time, well, I'm young, I don't need, I don't need any life insurance. Mm-hmm. Well, the fact of the matter is 10% of the people die before age 45. Say, that's 10%. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's a hundred out of a thousand, that's a lot. I mean, yeah. you're talking about a, a broad swath of ages. We're not saying at age one or at age 27, you're saying from zero to age 45, which that's a chunk of generally more than half of the life expectancy timeline of people's lives, but that's about 10% dying within that time frame. That's right. And so the purpose of the selection process is, is to prevent this adverse selection against the company so that the company is saying, yeah, we're not even going to, we're not even going to price against the people that we would not even cover. Yes. Okay. So if I can recap what you're saying is that the CSO table is the insurance company has actuaries that are looking at all the statistical components of life expectancy and ranking that over a curve of when they expect people to die. Now, the people that they're using for this research are people that they generally would insure, not people with terminal illnesses or genetic concerns that would prevent or exclude them from obtaining life insurance in the first place. So we're talking generally about normal health, but there's a curve of when those people die based on these 10 million lives. And the reason we're even talking about this is that you need to understand how the life insurance company views the likelihood of death because that is their number one expense is paying a death benefit to the person who's insured. So if you think from the life insurance company's perspective, when we completely oversimplify everything, you as the consumer transfer the burden of risk to a life insurance company saying, I know at some point I'm going to die. When I die, I want this person to take on the risk of paying out this benefit to my heirs. So I'm, I, the consumer is, uh, am, I am giving up this risk to the life insurance company. The life insurance company then is saying, I'm going to charge you person insured for this transfer of risk. And I need to figure out if it's worth it for me to cover you based on your likelihood of death within this curve of generally insurable people. I did not simplify that in any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the, the thing about it is they're going to look at your age your gender, 
and your health and your habits. So those are things. Now let's just age is self-explanatory. Um, your gender is self-explanatory. Maybe not as well, much. I was going to say in today's see. world, who knows? Yeah. But it should be self-explanatory. And <laughs> your health, your health uh, can be uh, obtained through medical questions and attending physician statements from the doctors you go to and the tests that they've run and so on and so forth. And then your habits, uh, they actually price in what they consider bad habits because people are more likely to die in those situations. So, so pilots, motorcycle people, and scuba divers are examples of habits that you have that you that doesn't mean you're disqualified from getting life insurance, but there's going to be increased pricing because of that. Because of the increased Other, risk of early death, correct, specifically correct. to the life insurance company and the cost that they'll they'll sustain when that happens. Correct. And other habits would be the most common one is smoking. Mm -hmm. So although smoking has come down a lot, but that's another habit that they would just price in um, because people that smoke tend to die sooner than people that don't smoke. Doesn't mean that there's not an outlier mm -hmm. that a person that smoked doesn't live past normal mortality, but they have actuarial data that actually says this. So the so what they're doing is they're pricing it according to the people that they will accept. So where I was going with this earlier, when you get a standard rating from the company, doesn't mean that you're out of average health because they're excluding all the people that they would not cover. So when you get a standard rating, you're actually actually healthier than the general public. That's hard for some people to, to swallow because they're like, I can't believe I got standard. I'm very healthy. Well, yes, you're very healthy according to the general public. But with the public that the insurance company would actually cover, mm -hmm. you're in the, the standard range. So even if you get a substandard rating, that means that doesn't mean that you're not as that you're not as healthy as the average person in society. You're probably healthier, even though you've got a substandard rating. It's just that you're you have a lower rating according to the people that you would that would actually qualify to get life insurance. Bruce, that's really a helpful explanation. And I think a lot of times we can be really defensive about our health, especially if we're trying to make good decisions. And then we say, well, how come the insurance company is not recognizing my great efforts towards health? I mean, health is something that is challenging and multifaceted. There's so many components that go into it. And I love that you're sharing. You're almost taking that pressure off of the need to justify, well, I'm healthier than I think the insurance company says that I am. And so that's that's the most helpful explanation that I've ever heard in terms of understanding why you may be ranking with the insurance company lower than you expect. And no one wants so to hear that. I mean, no one wants to no. hear your substandard. I mean, that sounds terrible. You may as well say you're less than human. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what's interesting is, is, you know, people do People don't necessarily want to face their own mortality. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why people do not even want to do life insurance because they have to face their mortality. And then they do the life insurance and then they get a substandard rating. Well, what does that say to them? Oh my goodness, I'm going to die sooner than I thought I was going to die. Um, actually, probably not because if you're basing it upon life expectancy tables, 
then you're probably still going to outlive that life expectancy table. So what well, are, whatever, one thing, whatever, bef- sorry, go ahead. I was just going to make a comment on what you just said. It's very important to also remember that just because the life insurance company rates you somewhere, that means that the probability of your death is ranked a certain way according to their statistical calculation. That does not. So Bruce, you say this all the time, and I just think it's an ideal spot to say this. They know how many people of certain health will pass away at certain ages. They do not know who. So it is in no way the insurance company saying, I'm God, and I know exactly when your days are numbered, and here's the day that you're going to pass away. They do not know based, they do not know about your life. It's not a, they're not mind readers. They're not psychic. It's not that. They really are basing it on the likelihood based on your factors, but they don't know that you, when you will pass away. Um, Go ahead, Bruce. Absolutely. Although there are more and more companies that are trying to do DNA testing to <laughs> to predict that, um, that's that's for another show. But uh, one of our longtime listeners and and a great participant, Fritz, asked if someone is renewing a policy after it lapsed for a few years, why do you think an insurance company would raise an alarm in the sense of having an individual doing multiple medical tests? Well, Fritz, I don't think it's necessarily that they're raising an alarm is. They have to protect not only the company, but what if it's a mutual company, they also have to protect the, the policyholders who are part owners of the company. Now, and as you know, you have not, if it's a policy has lapsed, the original policy was dependent upon an uninterrupted, an uninterrupted premium throughout the entire life of the policy. If you interrupt the premium, and then go back to to it the and i've talked to the underwriters about this and you've lapsed the policy they're wondering why all of a sudden do you want this policy again and the and the short answer is their their logic would be well you wanted it at one point it became unimportant to you now it's again important right because that's what you're demonstrating why would it generally be more important now? Because something happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something happened in your life that you believe now you have a shorter mortality. And so that is why they're, they question it. It's not, it may be just because you had a bad administrative situation. You know, mm-hmm. you, you didn't send in your premium or maybe you had a bad uh, cash flow situation, so you couldn't send in your premium. But whatever the reason is, those two things actuarially actually attribute to a person dying faster. We were just talking about this the other day in our study group with IBC. If you have poor administrative skills and you cannot even get your premium in, and Fritz, I'm not saying you have poor administrative skills because I don't know you, but Overall, the company knows that those type of people, if they can't take care of their insurance premiums, also don't take care of their health. Mm. It's just, if you don't take care of one thing that's important, you're not going to take care of another thing. I always used to tell when I was a teacher, I used to say, you're not one way in one aspect of your life and another way in another aspect of your life. That's awesome. You know, it's somebody told me one time, this was before I was married. And basically they said something to the effect of, and I don't know if they said it in the positive or the negative, but they said something along the lines of a clean and orderly home 
means that there's a clean, like the, the, the family's healthier and a completely disorganized and chaotic and very, very messy and disorganized home is less healthy of a family or something to that nature. And I'm probably completely misquoting it, but that's the meaning generally that was behind it. And that's true. I mean, if you're organized in your finances, you're probably going to be organized in your home office. You're going to be organized in your work. You're going to be organized in your communication. You're going to be decisive and organized in the way that you live. And Bruce, that's a fantastic way of realizing that, yes, if you can't handle your money, you're probably not going to handle your health very well. Right. And that, and that was the next part. If you if you did have a situation where you couldn't make the premium and that's why it lapped, then not everybody, but they have the actuarial data that, that then also causes stress. And that stress then means your life expectancy will be shortened. Mm. So they have to figure that out. So many fascinating ideas here. My goodness. Okay. So let's come back to the mortality table. Um, which mm-hmm. Bruce, you're calling the CSO table, which stands for Commissioner Standard Ordinary Mortality Table. This is the chart of of you're saying 10 million lives or of a swath of people, how many, what percentages of them are going to die at what ages. And so the reason that the insurance company is doing this statistical research and updating it as life expectancy increases over time is because they want to make sure that they don't charge you $100 for your life insurance policy, and then realize 50 years later that they significantly undercharged you and everyone else because now they're paying way more insurance death benefit claims earlier than they expected, which then would make the insurance company suffer greatly in their financials. They would not be profitable. They'd probably go out of business. They'd be irresponsible and negligent in their pricing strategy. And so the insurance company, I mean, it's it's maybe easier to price something if you're buying a product and you're selling it tomorrow and you have a short window between your purchase and your sale of something if you are in business. But their purchase of life insurance and their sale of life insurance or the, the way that they're obtaining the risk and the way they're paying out for the risk, it's a really long time frame, And so they have to make very good decisions that stand and hold true over a very long period of time in order to maintain their profitability and make sure that they're there. They are, they're still financially solvent, they're stable, so that they can pay out claims and do all the things that they're promising they can do. Yeah, it's one of the most controversial things about whole life insurance because they actually charge you a little more than what they expect. And it's not because they're trying good. to make more, right? It's not because they're trying to make more profit that they're going to hoard. It's actually because they want to make sure they keep their promises and, oh, we're going to be reevaluated every year. And if we didn't need that, then we're going to actually give it back to you in the form of a dividend. Yes. And, 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 you know, this is what people say, all they're doing is giving your own money back. Well, according to the IRS, that's why dividends are not taxable because it's considered a return of premium. However, I've, I've pointed this out on other shows. If it's only the return of your own money, then your cash value would not grow past what you put in as far as premiums. Mm-hmm. And so there is a, there is a increase of the dividend based upon the profitability of the company, not just because they're returning the, the, um, the, the overpayment of the premium. Bruce, so. 
what illustrates that really well is that Nelson starts this chapter by saying the starting point for the life insurance company's financials is figuring out what these mortality tables are. So all this statistical analysis to figure out how to price the policies in the first place. That's the starting point. Then the ending point or the result of all of their financials is dependent on three things. The earnings of the money invested by the insurance company. So there's more happening in terms of what they're bringing in than just premium. They're taking that premium. They're making wise financial uh, management choices about how they're going to invest that for growth. So they're looking at the growth on the money that they're investing in addition to their operating expense, all the expenses that they're paying for the home office, keeping the building, buying the property, doing the underwriting, paying all the salaries of the employees that are working in the home office. There's so much that's going into the operating expense. So they have to operate a business. There's expenses for the sake of doing that. And also, so earnings from their investments, operating expense, and thirdly, mortality expense based on the projections. So they want to build in that buffer so that their cost of paying out claims is a little bit less than what they expected it to be in terms of the pricing strategy. And then also when your operating expense is a little bit lower and your your income from your investments is a little bit higher, your mortality expense is a little bit lower, those things all factor into higher profitability, which means you as the owner of the policy benefits by getting that dividend. Yeah, I mean... There's a lot about a lot about business that is wrapped up into this episode that I don't know if people are catching, but you want your life insurance company to be successful. Why? Yes. Because they are going to pay out. Well, first of all, they're, they're taking care of your own money and they're going to pay out a death benefit. You want them around. I, I mentioned this, I think, on a show a long time ago, but you know, my wife and I had a problem with our oven and, uh, no, I'm sorry. We had a problem with our dishwasher mm. and I, the guy came in to work on the dishwasher and he, he fixed it really quickly. He found the short $15 part and he apologized. He apologized for charging me $80 for the service call. And yet the other people that I had called around were going to charge anywhere between 150 and 175. And I actually said to him, I said, hey, who's the owner of this company? And he said, well, I am. I said, well, you're really, really good. I said, you need to charge more for this because I could see he was wore out. He was talking about wanting to retire. He was too busy. Well, the reason he was too busy is because people use his service because he only charged 80. He charged half of what everybody else was charging. The demand was high because his price was too low. Too low. And I, I wanted him to be around. So I, I said, you, listen, you need to at least charge $120. Then you could actually hire somebody else and you won't have to work as hard. You can run the company and you don't have to retire. And I didn't get through to him. He didn't understand the concept. Mm-hmm. We don't, we, you know, it was a two minute conversation, but it's the same way with the insurance companies. They're going to, you want them to be, maintain profitability Absolutely. so that they're around for all your services. All right, Absolutely. Rachel, Fritz, Fritz has another, he always has great comments. The CSO table is like the time value of money attached to your life expectancy. 
the more time you have to live, the better your rating, the more time you have to compound, the more you will have. Fritz, that's a very good, simple way of saying it. Very, very good. So yes, yes. Um, it's, there is one other factor that they take in consideration is, and this, I, have this, uh, I have this question asked me all the time, how old is too old to start this? Mm. And what you have to understand is that um, you can still get great cash value accumulation because what the insurance companies will do is lessen their risk. When you're older, you're closer to mortality, but they just lower the death benefit. So you can still get the same cash value accumulation or close to the same cash value accumulation at 40 as you do at 62, or I should say at 62 as you do at 40, because they'll simply lower the death benefits. Hmm. So yes. infinite banking actually works even for older people. I just had this conversation last weekend with a 62-year-old. He said, you know, what's the oldest that you can actually do this? And I said, well, 62 is easy. You know, yes, you'll, you'll you know, at a at $5,000 a month between you and a 40-year-old, you probably have half the death benefit, but the cash value will still be the same. And that's one of the concepts of infinite banking. I think that goes really well into the next piece of this conversation. I'm going to try to um, make a overview of the whole next chunk that we need to discuss in this chapter, and then we'll kind of break it down. So we mentioned, Bruce, you mentioned that out of a thousand Americans that are born, um, 100 of them die before age 45. But that means 900 are still alive at age 45. I'm going to try to say this as simply as possible. And I'm going to show you also, this is probably not the best way to show, but there is the chart of how many people are dying at various ages, along with all of my notes that I've written in the book. So Nelson breaks this down and basically says then from age 45 to 65, which 65 we're going to talk about in a second, is the age that most people peg as the retirement age for arbitrary reasons, which we'll share in a second. So one-fourth of the remaining 900 die between 45 and 65. What that means is that 75% of the people who are still living at age 45 will still be living after age 65. Now, I know that that was a lot of numbers and it sounded maybe a little confusing, so I'm going to try to say it again in a different way. Of the people who are still living at age 45, the chances that you will live past 65 are very high, 75% chance of living past 65 if you're still living at 45. What that means is that you're probably going to need income after age 65. If you're living, you're going to need income. If you're living, you have expenses of life. And then he says even further, three-fourths will require the income after age 65. Even one-fourth will still require income after age 80. All of this goes to show that usually what happens is we have this false concept of the need for insurance is through my working years of age 65, which is determined in a completely um, unlogical, illogical fashion for today's life expectancy. And then we say, well, my need for insurance is through that randomly, arbitrarily determined age of 65, after which I don't have a need for life insurance anymore. So then he goes into this big um, diatribe almost about um, misclassification 
and how things that used to not make sense or used to be um, shunned then become widely accepted. And all of this shows that what used to happen with retirement was determined in Germany. 65 became the age that people had to be pushed out of the workforce to make way for the younger people to come into the workforce. That age of 65 was interesting at that time because in Germany, um, Bismarck in Germany had set this up in a, a much earlier year. And then Franklin D. Roosevelt got the idea and brought it into America. But what was happening was that life expectancy for males in America around that time in 1937 was 61 years old. What that meant was if you had to be pushed out of the workforce by the time you'd lived past the life expectancy already by four years, well, you're probably not very effective at working anymore. However, 61 was the life expectancy then and is certainly not the life expectancy today. So at the time of writing this book, which was before now, um, Nelson says that now the figure is in the mid 70s, but we're still using that age 65 factor for retirement purposes. Basically, what's happening is retirement, the retirement age was set when life expectancy was less than 65. Now we're living way past age 65 and we're still using that age 65 marker thinking we should stop working at that point. The problem is 75% of the people living at age 45, still living at that age, are needing income and are still alive after age 65, meaning the likelihood of you living past that is way higher. And now we have this misclassification of life insurance where we think, well, my need for life insurance is until retirement and term is a cheaper way to go because I just need to be insured through age 65. So Bruce, there's so much that we need to unpack within that, but let's just talk about well, first, let me hear your thoughts and where you would like to go. I think the most important thing is going to be to talk about why we actually have a need for life insurance after 65. Yeah, so Nelson was an Austrian economist. So Austrians do not believe in retirement in, in what we think of today. They believe in uh, actually uh, being productive citizens in the economy. So Nelson didn't like this whole thing about retirement. That's why he worked up to the day he died. And um, that's why, you know, when I, as a cash flow strategist, you know, with my clients, I try to encourage them to actually not completely retire, to actually stay active. Just if you want, cut down on what you're doing, but don't just completely retire. So this was an artificial thing that um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought to the United States not because he felt like he needed to give people this utopia of, you know, retiring. It was actually as one of the misinformed, in my opinion, and a lot of economists' opinion, that there needed to be something done to get people out of the Great Depression, where we had 25% unemployment. So he used Bismarck's uh, socialist program that they used, arbitrary program, to say, let's give people 65 years and older a, a bare necessity to get out of the workforce so that we can get younger people into the workforce. And as you already pointed out, Rachel, most of the life expectancy, at, not mostly life expectancy at that time was 
age 61. So it wasn't even there uh, to 65. So most people were not going to receive Social Security. And even if they did receive it, they weren't going to be around very long to put strain on the system. Mm-hmm. There was there was a uh, an adjustment in the mid 80s to where they they adjusted it from age 65 for what they call full retirement age to age 67. And why? Because they didn't have enough money. We can talk about the reasons why they didn't have enough money, but that's for another show. Now we're coming into another situation again, where in 2000, depending on which research you agree or disagree with, in 2032 or 2035, depending on how the economy goes, they're going to have to make another adjustment because even though they raise the full retirement age, they don't, they're only going to have enough money to pay for about 75% of the promises they made for Social Security. Now, Social Security was never meant to be a retirement program. And that's why people get all bent out of shape about this. It's like, well, that was for my retirement. Well, that's not what it was set up. It's a social program to actually give people a minimum amount of money to actually get out of the workforce so that younger people can get into the workforce. And that affects that affects how you look at uh, the mortality because I've, I've also mentioned this before, the older you get, the older you get. And so when you're already 65, there's a different life expectancy for you than there is for somebody that's just born. Why? You've already proven that you can live a healthier life. You've already proven that your habits are better. But the, probably the most important things is you don't have any genetic problems that actually shorten your life like a normal person does. So the older you get, the older you get. You so have to, I have of, to point out that you sound like Dr. Seuss, but let's go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but so then you have to take into account that that's another thing they do on the CSO tables is they actually understand that a 65-year-old, although they're, they're closer to the normal mortality at birth, there's a different there's a different actuarial table for that particular person because they have survived all the things beforehand. So it's priced differently. Becca Wilhite jumped in here with a comment and I want to point it out because it's almost the exact point that I wanted to make about um, retirement. So she said, statistics show that people have the most productive years of their lives after 60. Why would you want to miss out on that? And that's absolutely true because I mean, when you mentioned Austrian economists don't believe in retirement, uh, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I think we're probably pretty Austrian on this show. And I mean, we look at my view of retirement. We look at uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, who we've had on the show. The And all of those people are pointing to the idea that retirement is not a good end goal. If your end goal is to stop working and then live off of what you've accumulated, that's not not only does it financially not work out, it's not good for your mindset. When you put out of use, retire yourself, 
and put yourself out of use when you have the most capability, you've had the most learning and the most uh, ability to serve at a higher level to serve humanity. Why in the world would you stop serving and put yourself out of use? You're going to have your mental capacity and faculties decay as you stop putting yourself to use for the good of humanity. So working is. Nelson had a lot of Nelson had a lot of influence on you, Rachel, because he used to say in his two day seminar, look up the word retire mm-hmm. in Webster's dictionary, and it says to remove from use. Yes. And so that who the heck wants me. to be yeah, who the heck wants to be removed from use? You know, I do, as I said, I'm also a cash flow strategist for um my retire my people that are looking for retirement. And I often tell them, I just had this conversation with a 68-year-old the other day. She's, she's an engineer, and she, she's got some health issues, so she's, she has some difficulty doing her uh, sitting at a desk, scrunched over. She has some shoulder issues. And she said, but I like my job, um, but they're not going to let me work part-time. And I said, mm. no, that's, that's a limiting factor that you have in your head. Oh, yeah. First of all, um, the the job market is not filled with people that have had an engineering experience for 40 years. Okay, so so you've been with the same company for 40 years. You have a tremendous amount of knowledge that a 26-year-old doesn't have. So do you really think they want to let that 40 years of knowledge just walk out the door? No. They're And if they do, then it's not a good company anyway. What they would like is for you to work a couple of days a week and mentor the 26-year-old. And it works financially mm-hmm. in my business consulting. It works financially because, you know, she's making X, let's say 200000 a year. You hire a new person that makes 120000 a year. You still pay her $40,000 a year. So the company still saves $40,000. It's 120 plus forty is 160. Mm-hmm. So the company now gets a full-time worker, a part-time worker with knowledge with not for 160 instead of a full-time worker for 200. I mean, it makes perfect sense to do that in our society. Why allow that to walk out the door? Oh, absolutely. And if they want that to walk out the door, then she could just say, "Well, I'm going to walk out the door." And then I'll hire myself back to you as a contractor when I make my format my own business entity and then work the hours that I choose. Um, so, Bruce, we are getting really close to the time and we're not anywhere close to the end of this chapter. I knew this was going to happen, but I think what's really important to point out before we conclude today is the the misnomer of the need for life insurance ending at age 65. So we've looked at the mortality table and we've said, if you're if you're living at age 45, the chances that you're going to live past age 65 is 75% likelihood. So if we then say, well, the need for life insurance is just till my retirement only, the chances that you're going to live past that are so high, three-fourths of a, of a whole or 75% chance that you're going to live past age seven or past age 65. I'm throwing out numbers that I'm I'm tangling my words. So what that means is that why would you want to purchase life insurance for a short time when you're least likely to die 
only to not have the product around when you're most likely to pass away because he breaks down what insurance really is. Insurance is in every other case is insuring an if event. You have flood insurance for if a flood happens. You have um, homeowners insurance, insurance for homeowners if insurance. you're, yeah, if, it, if a fire happens. You have car insurance for if an accident happens. Well, life insurance is not a if death happens situation. Death will happen to all of us at some point in time. And so what we want to do is ensure that when event, and we want to make sure that we're not just renting the insurance all up until the point that we need it the most, because when we pass away, we want to be able to have that death benefit payout so that our heirs can have all of the benefit that we had worked for years to build up. And so that's talking on the life insurance need or the need for life insurance after age 65. But Bruce, I would love to hear what your thoughts are on that as well. Specifically, I know that you're always sharing the desire to have a death benefit to take care of the people after you tremendously increases the older you get and the closer yeah, to this, the death that you get. Yeah, this is a very interesting um, thing when I talk to clients. When they're younger, there is a part of the part of them that understands the protection asset for their for their uh, clients but they're really setting it up for banking purposes. And then, you know, we are, we add a term rider onto that, to the policy. And we will get into this later on for the modified endowment contract. Uh, but the reason we do that is to satisfy the IRS rules. Well, it could be a 10 year, a 15 year, a 20 year, a 30 year term. Then when we do the reviews and all of a sudden that, 20-year term is about to drop off, and it might be three, four, five hundred thousand dollars of of death benefit that falls off. The same person who told me 20 years ago, uh, I don't really need that much death benefit because you know I don't I, my family will be okay without me, or they don't need that much. All of a sudden, they are very bothered by the fact that they're going to lose the three hundred, the four hundred, the five hundred thousand dollar death benefit. So the older you get, the more you value the death benefit because you can see your own mortality into the future. So Rachel, one uh, JJ's just asked a couple of things. He's really good at asking questions too. He said, there's, there's a really interesting movie back in 2020 called Worth with Michael Keaton and Stanley Tucci and Kate Donovan, um, three actors I really like. And it was about evaluating the the life of the 7-Eleven Victims Compensation Fund. Oh, interesting, JJ. I did. I do. I yeah. haven't. What did I say? You said 7-Eleven. That's not a big deal. Oh, <laughs> I meant to say <laughs> September 11th. Yeah. <laughs> um, I had heard about this, JJ. So thanks for um, bringing that up. The movie explained the CSO type tables to me in a new way. Well, I'm going to check that out. So. Uh, as we wrap up, yeah. Rachel, I want to make a couple of more points before we go, because I've heard this and, you know, we have a lot of people out there are still remembering COVID. And there's a lot of people, there's sensationalism in the media, social media, all over the place about how these life insurance companies are in trouble because of all these people from COVID dying. Mm. The fact of the matter is, there, none of the life insurance companies are going to go out of business because of COVID. 
And I just like to say the difference between um, to 2015 life expectancy of 78.94 and 2020, the year of COVID, was 78.81. We're talking 13 hundredths of a percent. 13 hundredths of a percent. Why is that when so many people died? Well, because the people that died were the people that were going to die in a short period of time anyway. So, the, unfortunately, it was tragic. A lot of nursing home people died. Well, those nursing home people, a lot of those people that died were going to die in three months, four months, five months, six months, even a year later. But they were going to die. So that, that's not affecting it. What about, what about the people with comorbidities? People that were, had diabetes, had tuberculosis. They had something else that happened to them, extremely overweight, smokers. They were going to die shortly anyway, so they were not affecting the overall um, mortality tables that much. A lot of people are sensationalizing this and thinking that it affected it greatly. It didn't. You can just look at the numbers. And then the, the final thing is, to just to clarify something, there are you're going to read some articles that are going to show that life insurance companies took big hits on this. Those life insurance companies that took the biggest hits, I wouldn't even say big hit, but the biggest hits are the companies that actually had group life insurance. When you have group life insurance, you cannot eliminate anybody in that group. And those because are only it's a guaranteed doing, issue. It's not underwritten. It's Correct. And the reason they can afford to do that is those are during the working years. And fewer people die during the working years. So, yes, some of, some of them had increased mortality. Most mutual companies do not play in that space. Okay, that group term insurance, most mutual companies do not play in that space. So the mutual companies were not affected by the COVID group health or life insurance situation. So those are the last two points I wanted to make today. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And I think helped answer questions for somebody who is concerned about lower life expectancy causing a higher cost to the insurance company, which then would lower their profitability and lower dividends. But you're saying those things are not a concern, which then helps us to understand why we can still have tremendous confidence to use infinite banking the way that Nelson Nash lays out because the solvency of the life insurance companies is still high and very strong. There's yeah, so I know I said, I, I know I said final, but you just sparked another thing, um, which I think our listeners would life insurance companies um, are not checking your vaccination status. Okay. So all you people that are worried about that, they're not checking your vaccination status. Did they do it for a short period of time during COVID? Yes, because they didn't know what's going to happen. But they don't price it differently because a lot of people are saying, once again, this is sensationalism. The anti-vaxxers are saying, oh, the life insurance co companies are checking your vaccination status because they know you're going to die within five years of getting the vaccine. That's a sensational. So, we, so all the vac people that got the vaccine are going to die within three years because they've already had it for two years. Um, 
that that was tongue in cheek, by the way. Um, they're not checking your vaccination status either to to uh, improve your your chances or to actually eliminate you. So that's the final thing I wanted to say on that. Well, there might be some more final things. Um, yeah. Lastly, as we're getting ready to wrap up here, I don't know if we've been on for an hour. I know we got started a couple minutes late. Um, I think we're going to probably come back and pick up in the middle of this chapter next time on this episode. But what I did want to point out is that Nelson is sometimes misunderstood for saying that your need for banking is higher than your need for life insurance. And this chapter really goes into that well, because basically what he said is that when you have life insurance, especially life insurance that is priced well, and that is for your whole life, and that will actually pay out when you pass away, which by the way, in the past, ordinary life did that. And that was all life insurance and term was this thing that was viewed with suspicion. And now it's generally accepted that everyone should have term and whole life is viewed with suspicion. That's the swap of the classification or misclassification, as he says. But what he does point out is that when you design policies where you are putting as much premium in as possible for a lower death benefit, this is exactly what he says. You're going to de-emphasize the the immediate death benefit. You're going to accentuate the banking qualities of that policy. But what's very interesting is he says the irony in doing it this way will result in providing more death benefits at the point where death will probably occur than any other plan. So I don't know if that is actually me sharing any information with you or if we're just incentivizing you to listen to the next episode where we'll unpack that a little bit more fully. But this balancing act of do I get infinite banking for the banking qualities and do I think about the banking component and build the cash value or do I get it for the death benefit? And Nelson just said something truly profound there where he said, if you focus on the banking component, not necessarily focusing on the death benefit and making sure you have the highest death benefit possible right now, he said, you will end up with a policy that has the greatest death benefit in the latest years, which is when you will need it the most because you are the most likely to die. So that's kind of the capstone on what this whole entire chapter was about, which we'll dig back into all of these um, issues and threads that we've been bringing together to help make that point. We're going to continue along that journey in part 13 that we talk together next when we talk together next, Bruce. Um, This has been a really great episode. I see a couple more comments. I thought there was something up here. Oh, Fritz had said earlier, after the pandemic, there was a lot of requests for folks so-called retired to return in their industry. Um, So that was something interesting to point out. Thank you, Fritz. And then (laughs) JJ Joyce said, great stuff, Rachel and Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Congrats on the new kiddo. So yes, we have a son. His name is Eli. Thank you for all of you who are thinking of us. And especially if you knew our story how I almost died after our second daughter was born. This was our next child after that. So you can imagine there was a little bit of apprehension there, um, especially because we had created, I mean, just our complete, our life was completely transformed by that near-death experience four years ago. And coming into birth this time, there was some intrepidation. At the same time, we just had a lot of peace and confidence that it was going to go well and a lot of preparation for that. It did go really well. Eli is here. I'm here and to God be the glory and praise for all of that. And yes, we're very excited. And Bruce, I'm pretty sure you know who Dr. Seuss is. 
you haven't probably read it to children, but the cat in the hat, I don't know if that rings a bell. Um, so it's, he has, oh, absolutely. A, okay. He has a witty way of saying everything. So, um, all right. Well, thank you for being with us today. Oh, Fritz had one more. Nelson wanted people to know that the capital is the core of our economy. If you put it at the you and me level, you're ahead of the financial game. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Thank you guys for joining us on the show today. Um, Bruce, any final, final, final thoughts that you want to share after the last final thoughts that both of us <laughs> shared? No, I just want to thank for everybody. We had a, a lot of people listening today. I, I'm always amazed at how many people jump on and listen, and I, I appreciate it. And um, if there's any specific topics you want us to cover, please let us know, and we'll do our best to cover those topics. Absolutely. Thank you for being with us on the show today. Go ahead and like, subscribe, share this episode with your friends and your family. And also, we just would love to know if you like the show, um, just go ahead and tell us about that. You can rate and review on iTunes or I guess it's called Apple Podcast. Now I'm a little behind the times there. So um, thank you greatly for being part of this community. And the more that you share and like, the more we're able to get this out to people like you who want this information to be readily available so that they can make good financial decisions. And I will say as well, if you are wanting to evaluate anything in your financial life so you can make better decisions, you can optimize your financial life, you can find the places to become more proficient and you can maximize the money you keep and the control that you have for your financial destiny, we would love to be a part of that conversation and talk with you. So you can go to themoneyadvantage.com. You can book an appointment with our advisors and you can talk about what you are wanting to accomplish and what you have to work with. And we can help you optimize your financial, your personal, you and me level personal economy. Thank you so much again for being with us today. And in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, Click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on the moneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at the moneyadvantage.com. Or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.